Hello and welcome to the first edition of 2021 um, for podcast 1201. Um, we, we hope that everyone listening has, has managed to enjoy their Christmas break um, d- despite the unusual circumstances this year. And we wish you all a very happy new year. Um, today I am joined, we've got, we've got a full roster for our first episode this year. So you're joined by myself, Bradley Allsop, and you are also joined by Ollie. Hello everyone, welcome to the new year. Uh, we're joined by Ewan. Hello, hello. Uh, we're joined by Mr Roper. Happy new year, year everyone, welcome to the podcast. Uh, we're joined by Mr Watt as well. Good morning and happy new year. So you've got, you got a full roster for some uh, insightful political commentary um, at the start of the new year. So it will be a surprise to no one that our first story is going to be COVID um, and, and the developments that have happened. Um, we've had a bit of a pause in our podcast over the Christmas break. So there's a fair bit to catch up on. And we also wanted to sort of, I suppose, take a bit of a, a retrospective look um, at how COVID has sort of changed the world and particularly UK politics as well um, over the last nine months or so. So since our last podcast, things have... Um, developed rapidly. I think in our last podcast, we were just talking about this new strain that, that was causing particular concern in, in London and, and, and the southeast of England. Uh, I think as we were talking about that on that podcast, London, London was looking set to enter tier four. Um, at, at the point of speaking, uh, basically most of England is, is in what has now been called tier four, um, something like around 75 to 80%. I think if you look at a heat map, it's basically pretty much everywhere in, in, in the UK, except for sort of areas in the southwest, um, so like Cornwall, Devon sort of area, um, and a higher end um, of the northeast by the looks of it. Lincoln itself, where where we're uh, casting from, is in tier four. Um, we, we, we're not doing great in terms of numbers, both cases and deaths. So, so Lincoln has entered tier four as of the 31st of December. I don't know when that's being reviewed. Does anyone know? They usually review these things every couple of weeks, don't they? Not a clue, but it's going to be a while, I imagine. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Link is in Tier 4, along with most of the rest of England. Um, Wales is in a is in a proper lockdown. Uh, Northern Ireland is in a six-week lockdown start, that started on Boxing Day. Um, and, and Scotland's brought in an, an Level 4 restrictions as well. Um, I mean, case wise, it's it's not looking it's not looking great. Um, according to the BBC, more patients in hospital now across the UK than in, in the first wave. Um, daily deaths um, yesterday was six hundred and thirty-one. I think the latest figure was no, sorry, six hundred and thirteen um, from yesterday, with fifty-three thousand cases um, re- reported yesterday, uh, and an extra one thousand two hundred. 77 hospital admissions so you know we're, we're really there's an argument that we're we're it's as bad as it's ever been in the in in the covid case in the uk and um, po- possibly heading towards actually being worse than, than things were in in march and april time at the peak of the first wave um who wants to go first who wants to give you your, your initial thoughts on on where we're at at the moment with covid callum roper What's your thoughts? Well, uh, where do I start? It's 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 a complete mess, really. I think what 
has been shown is that the government's approach of a lackluster patchwork cover way of, of dealing with COVID does not work. And we also know that the tier three restrictions were nowhere near enough initially to control the spread of this new um, this new type of, of COVID that's that's now I think it's the most um, most prevalent strain of, of COVID nineteen amongst the UK population. I think really tier four restrictions should have come in a lot sooner for the rest of the country. Arguably, actually, a full lockdown. I think that that would have been the best way to break this this spread um, by slowly reacting to what what is a, a fast spreading strain of the virus means that what the government has done is allowed it to spread and go amongst the population across the country leaving the southeast and then put on the brakes after the issue is that it's already amongst the population now far too slow to stop the spread i think a, a, a lockdown would have been more sensible i think the Christmas, um, well, the whole debacle around Christmas was completely unacceptable. I'm aware of cases where people have been fined over Christmas. People have not been found out to be flouting the rules over Christmas. But that's not their fault when it's a whole, they've been given one message one week saying, well, we're going to have a five-day period for you to have a Christmas uh, where you can see your family, you can mix in three households. They then get told, well, it will be one day. And people have, have said, well, they're, they're cancelling Christmas. I'm not having that. And now we've got in a situation where there is a massive spread of this new strain. And this new strain is moving through the population like wildfire. We've now got hospitals that are in crisis mode. There is hospitals here in London that are running out of oxygen. You've got ambulances outside uh, hospitals waiting to get people into A&E but there is no space. You've also got in Essex, they declared an emergency there. They've asked for the army to come in and support them in their in their healthcare, um, putting on all the services. We've had uh, non-essential surgery cancelled. We've had people being told that there's they, they shouldn't really go to a hospital because it's that infected with COVID. We've had the London Ambulance Service telling people to think twice about ringing 999 and to, to instead use other services and only to ring if it's absolutely essential. And this is because the Tories have once again failed to react quick enough and putting strong enough measures when it was necessary. I think the writing, sorry, the, the, the writing was on the wall a few weeks before we had this massive spread. They were aware of the strain they were slow to act, and then suddenly are, are trying to act like they've um, that they've they've reacted super quickly. And when well, actually, what they've done is caused a massive spread of this, not putting enough measures, and then caused mass confusion amongst the population. I think I think um, we're, we're probably yet to see the, the impact of, of Christmas, aren't we? Really, um, it's it's only just over a week after after Christmas. Yeah, I, I strongly suspect that there were a lot of people that were breaking the rules. Um, and, you know, part, partly this is the government's fault. You know, they, they promised people this five day period of, of a relaxation of the rules. It was always a bit of a suspect thing to promise anyway. It was always going to be a dangerous policy anyway. 
Um, but then with very short notice, they sort of took that away from people. Um, and, and of course, also gave people a matter of hours to move in or out of a tier four area, um, you know, and announcing the, the tier four restrictions in London um, hours be- before they were going to come into effect. Which, you know, uh, at Calibers, you saw yourself travelling to London, you saw, you know, packed on the trains and other forms of public yeah. transport. Um, I, I think we're probably yet to see the full impact of that and, and Christmas period. Oh, sorry, I was not showing my water. Um, Christmas period as well, because, you know, these things take a couple of weeks to come in, don't we? So I mean, we, we might be seeing the effects of maybe the, the tier four restrictions announced last, because that was about two weeks ago now. Um, but... But in terms of the Christmas period and any breaches in the rules there, we're probably still going to, that's probably still not fully reflected in the, in the figures yet, I imagine. Um, and, you know, there is, there is a side of it in which, you know, pe- people shouldn't be breaching the rules, but also when the government's handled things this poorly um, and given such short notice and such quick U-turns, you can, you can understand it to an extent. I think it's also worth looking at what the tier restrictions mean as well. So obviously t- tier three, which previously was, you know, when they fought, first brought in these sort of tiered restrictions, we all sort of the tier three was described as you know like a like a really quite a strict set of, 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 of almost a lockdown sort of thing. You know, it's quite it was seen as quite strict. Oh, you really don't want to be in tier three. Um, but actually, since since December, tier three, you've had shops open as normal, and, and most most businesses operating as sort of normal. You know, obviously people wearing face masks and sanitizing their hands when they go into shops and things, but. You know, you walk down Lincoln High Street whilst we were in Tier Three. Pretty, you could almost imagine it was a normal day if you ignored the face masks, um, and and that's what most of the country was operating in, um, something like that for, throughout most of December. So it's not really a surprise, even if you ignore the new strain, that, that you're going to see quite a large number of cases. And even Tier Four still isn't really as strict as as the the lockdown um, in March, and the lockdown we had throughout November wasn't as strict as the lockdown in March either because they still allowed universities and schools to open. So, you know, it, it seems like the tier system is, is clearly just inadequate. It, it just can't, it cannot stop the spread of the virus at all, even if you ignore the new strain. But now we've got the new strain in, which is looking like it's, it, it's um, you know, much higher rates of infection. Uh, you know, it, it just seems completely hopeless to, to think that the tier, the tier system is going to be able to combat the spread of this. Ewan, what do you think? Um, I think the kind of one of the main problems with the tier system was um, they started in quite a few places too low before they went too high, if if that makes sense. So, you know, you have places like London opened on tier two. But uh, yeah, this is a problem of not doing a national kind of, uh, kind of bringing things in nationally and, on you know, kind of uh, taking, you know, the problem with tiers is um a lot of people get confused by them a lot of people like um have problems with them they're very arbitrary which places get put in tiers so um there was like um like much of, much of nottinghamshire was just kind of very abruptly put into um tier 3 when lockdown ended in november even though it had some like after about 2 weeks had some lower rates than places like um london and it still stayed there and now it's in tier 4 um, so the modelling of how they didn't deal with it isn't very good. Really, what I think the government should do and probably should have done is New Year's around about now, um, put everyone into a lockdown for about one or two months, 
and call it like a vaccine lockdown, if that makes sense, where you have a lockdown where it's just, right, we're going to be trying to vaccinate as many people as possible that way. And then, because the problem with lockdowns is you have to have a reason for locking down, otherwise people won't follow the rules. And that's the problem with tier system is that a lot of people, you know, they're like, oh, you have to be in this tier. And then people are like, why are we in this tier? We, you know, we have lesser rates than this area. I'm not going to follow it. Um, so that's the problem there. And so what you should try and do is you have to give a reason for locking down. And I think that's that's probably actually the major reason problem with the government is they don't often give reasoning for why they're doing this thing. They just kind of do it and then people get angry and they don't follow the rules because they haven't been given they haven't been told why they're doing it. So yeah. <laughs> and and as already alluded to uh by, by Mr. Roper, obviously two key public institutions that are gonna be affected by this at the moment are one, you know, hospitals and, and the NHS more widely. Um so if you if you I mean if you in the last couple of days if you've been following some of the stuff in the news it, it's actually quite quite scary what what um some frontline medical staff are saying um in terms of um you know w- wards getting and hospitals getting towards or even beyond capacity um the number of patients coming in um the the warnings from medical staff uh, is that you know we're heading for something quite severe actually and and something quite dangerous if nothing else changes um i i even saw a report about um the concerns that if they were reopening the Nightingale Hospital, they, they wouldn't have enough staff to man it, and um, b- because of because of all the, the issues they're facing in the NHS at the moment. So th- that that's concerning. But obviously, the, the flip side of that is is schools, and and should schools be reopening again? Um, so th- there's a number of different responses depending on where people are, um, in in terms of schools. So um, mo- most secondary schools have got a, a delayed opening. Um, to, to the 11th of January, so an extra week, um, and, and some year groups um, is even being pushed back to the 18th of January. Most primary schools in England seem to be opening um, as, as normal on Monday. Um, do, do we think that's right? Do we, do we think that schools should be opening? I mean, obviously the argument throughout, um, particularly obviously they closed during the first lockdown, but particularly in the second lockdown, the argument was that schools need to be, to be open because students have already had such a disrupted education over the last year. Um, we really cannot afford um, for, for any more restrictions to, to come in for uh, or any more disruptions to students' education. Um, but particularly with this new strain, which seems to spread even, even easier um, than, than the previous ones, um, should schools be staying um, closed or should they be open again? Ollie, what are your thoughts? Well, I actually think it's been far more damaging having this, um, the approach that the government have had towards education i mean we've already seen how many like u-turns and and if you remember last year with the uh, the debacle about a levels and and grades um and they just they have such disregard for um students and people in education that they just they're, they're it's just really bad leadership really um i think as things are currently um i think it's pretty insane to be considering opening schools up um this this next week on monday i mean it's saturday now schools are set to open um, mostly across england on monday but um it was in the news this morning that the largest teacher union in the uk is, is set to tell teachers not to return on monday i think it's pretty remarkable um gavin Willis- williamson has a job really i i trust teachers and teachers unions um on their feeling towards returning to school than i, I do 
um, the education secretary and the government by far. I, I think it's the the whole approach towards education. Uh, I um I completely understand why it's really damaging for students not to be in schools um for a long amount of time. But I think it's been far more damaging the government the the approach that the government has taken to this throughout the whole pandemic. Um, and it's it's in stark contrast to places that decided to um, close their schools as soon as there is a, a situation developing and kept them closed for the duration, rather than having them tick away in the background as these these COVID breeding grounds, um, and then opening them back back up again when the the situation maybe changed because their their restrictions were probably quite a lot stricter at the time. But it's I think it's now their schools are back open and it's been far less damaging to um, <clears throat> people's educations than it has been for somewhere like here, where it's been a complete reactionary approach. Yeah, uh, Callum, what, what are your thoughts? Callum Roper. Yeah, I, I, I'd just like to echo what Ollie was saying there, that actually the, the government's approach is, is completely damaging in so many ways. And yes, the important thing we've got to take into account is that this is children's education's uh, risk. But actually, there's there's ways we can mitigate that. So we can ensure that they have proper internet connections at home. We can give them laptop PCs loaned out to make sure that they're able to access all the resources possible. We also need to kit out teachers so they can work from home because not you've got to remember that some teachers are not paid very well at all but they do it because they love the job that they do. And so when, when the NEU says that they're going to tell teachers not to go in, I think we should fully support them in that decision. I know for a fact that a lot of schools are telling their teachers that in the classroom they cannot wear PPE. They can't wear a face mask and they can't wear a shield because it scares the children. Now, I think that everybody has a right to go to work and be safe. Everybody has a right to go to work and not be at risk of eventually dying of COVID-19. And we do remember the cases, certainly during the first lockdown, when we were being told about teachers that were dying because they'd contracted COVID-19 at work. That's unacceptable. And I think a trade union should absolutely be standing up for their, for their members and that profession. So well done to the NEU. And I think that teachers are the experts. Teachers know the children. And they're not saying we don't want to be teaching the children. They're saying we need to move online to make sure that we're safe, the students are safe, the families are safe, and ultimately the nation is safe because it means that it protects the NHS because you've got less cases. It means we're controlling the spread of the virus because if you've got to think of how many household bubbles come together at a school, not just between the children, but parents mingling outside waiting to pick up their kids from primary school. So... I think that also the government needs to have a look at exams. A number of other of the of the devolved powers have already said that exams are not going to go ahead. And the the UK, uh, certainly the UK government approach to English exams is that they're going to go ahead as normal in May. And I think that we need to already start talking about the alternatives that we can take to ensure that children do not miss out on qualifications and they don't have their future damaged by this. But the ultimate thing is that we've got to keep everyone safe. Yeah, I, th I think that's a really good point, actually, in terms of 
complete solidarity with NAU um, and and the teachers that that will be listening to the union on Monday and not going in. It, I think it'd be really interesting to see if if the government takes further action over the weekend in response to that. Um, that it is a government known for U-turns. Um, I've lost count of how many we've had in the past year, uh, particularly in regards to the Education Secretary Gavin Williamson. He, he's not someone that's known um, for 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 uh, game planning things out very well and often often comes into screeching U-turns. So it will be interesting to see what the response from the government is to, to the NEU uh, over the weekend. Um, but if if they do decide to, to dig in, um, then then I'll, I think that we'll probably see attacks on teachers, won't we? We'll, we'll see sort of, you know, political attacks and interventions in the media. Um, you know, we saw we saw it in, in the first wave as well, didn't we? With, with teachers raising concerns about going into the classroom um, and, and sort of, um, headlines from various tabloids, you know, ca- calling upon teachers to make sacrifices and, and suggesting that they they are being selfish for not basically putting their own health at risk by going in. Um, so it'd be interesting to see what the response from government is. If they decide to dig in and, and, and drag their heels, then then we might see some attacks on on the teachers and teachers unions um, in the press over over the coming weeks. And I suppose you know places like uh, Blog Twelve One and others need to be there to to sort of counter those and and put forward. Um, you know the 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 true truer narrative, which is that you know it, it's not a safe working environment for teachers at the moment, um, and and it will help spread the virus if if classes continue um, as as is currently planned. I should also a caveat. I said most primary schools are going back um, on Monday. Um, those I think in tier four areas, or or at least some of the the highest levels um, of of infections are not. So areas like the southeast and London, um, I think primary schools are, are delaying their return there as well. Um, Mr. Watt, I'm keen to get you in um, on this. Do, do you think uh, the government will, will try to fight back a little bit against any EU's advice, or, or do you think we're we're in for another U-turn in the next couple of days? I'd uh, be interested to see if there's a if there's a strike. Um, and, and I think, as others have suggested, I think that will be uh, quite justified. I think that, that uh, maybe should have been done earlier. Actually, I've always held the view that basically children are effectively small petri dishes for the virus um you know at the end of the day biologically exactly the same as adults so i don't see any reason why they wouldn't be responsible for um spreading the virus as well um so i mean obviously i take take obviously we have to listen to what teaching unions have said um you know, and there is a fear about children falling behind as well. Um, but I think that at this stage, teachers are absolutely right to, to say that schools should be closing um, and remain closed while we're while, at least while we're at this um, peak, um, this very very frightening peak. I'm sure that the government will push back on it. I think they will probably lose, actually. Um, I think they will lose the argument, or at least I, uh, at least I certainly hope so. Um, but uh, it's, it's uh, too unpredictable to say. And uh, Ewan, I'm, I'm keen to get your thoughts. What what do you think um, is likely? Do you, do you think that we're going to see all schools closing for at least a couple of weeks? Um, on on top of some of the closures that have been announced, do you think the government's going to go further now in response to this? 
Well, um, I found it quite amusing that they got uh, Michael Gove to announce a couple of weeks ago that, like, no, no, schools will all be open because Michael Gove is the person, per perfect person to announce it because it's very easy to just you turn on it later and you go, oh no, he's just you know, it's Michael Gove. No one really listens to him. Yes, the education secretary in recent history, possibly. Yes, so it's very easy to just you know have him prattle off stuff and then quietly. Um, change things around um, at the last minute. Also, I would, I would argue about most loathed education secretary in recent history. I think Gav Gavin Williamson is trying to compete with him there. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's a hard fought for title in fairness. <laughs> fair enough. But yes. Um, no, I think there will probably be closing just because um, much in the same way that I see within probably about a week or two There'll probably be a proper lockdown, not just tears. They'll probably actually just do a lockdown by that point because I think in the end they'll just be like, bugger it, essentially. <laughs> but um, no, I think schools will be closed, definitely in tier four areas because I can't see any other way of how you'd be. Because there was that weird thing with trying to like do safe havens and like Lambeth and stuff where it's like, no, no, schools are fine, they're open. And then the head teacher was like, I think you, they were on Twitter and they were just like, no, no one's told me about this. <laughs> it's like, um, which I think says a lot about the incompetence of the government. But um, Well, I mean, the, the thing they were before we when we did our last podcast, that the big issue that schools had at, at that point, so, you know, two, two or so weeks ago now, was that the government just before the Christmas break announced that they'd expect it, that they were going to give schools a little bit longer to open because they wanted them to put in place mass testing for their students. Um, and they were sort of expecting the schools to, to, to use that extra time to, to put all that in place. And, you know, the schools were sort of quite rightly like, well, you know, how on earth are we supposed to do that? And why have you given us such short notice in which to do it just before the Christmas break? Um, so I, I think I think that and a lot, along with the tier system, I mean, you, you said it probably flippantly, but I think it's probably true. You know, we'll probably have a, a national lockdown in a couple of weeks because the government will think, oh, bugger it. But that seems like, you know, the perception, I think, of most people now at this point, after nine months of this, is that the government doesn't really have a plan. They, they, you know, they sort of, I think there's probably criteria they use, you know, for the tier system, although I'm not 100% certain what that is, and it's quite difficult to find out what puts you in tier four if you, if you try and figure it out. Um, but, you know, it, it just seems like there's not really a plan, and, and, and the government's just sort of reacting to things and often reacting really sluggishly and slowly, um, rather than having a really coherent sort of set of plans of, you know, if, if we reach this, then we do this, and it just seems to be constantly sort of quite haphazardly reacting to things and, and quite badly as well. Uh, Mr. Roper, what, what are your thoughts? I I think there is almost a, it's an unnerving silence from the Labour Party on this issue. I don't think that the front bench of the Labour Party have done anywhere near enough to show solidarity with teachers, to raise the issue and the profile of the issue uh, that's been completely the work of journalists in the unions. The Labour Party's been almost silent. And if, if anything, a lot of, of people um, from the front bench have been reiterating the old line before we realised how serious the situation was, that Labour supports schools reopening um, and we support the, uh, the need to ensure that children are getting a, a proper education. Sentiments that we all share, but this is a situation that is extremely dangerous. And I think that the Labour Party, certainly being the party of the workers, 
uh, a party meant to be representing trade unions needs to step up to the plate here and say that the schools need to close. They need to close now. And we need to be ensuring that everybody, whether it be teachers, students, families, are getting the proper protections that they need. And they also need to be protected with their with their health, both physically and mentally. So there's, there's, there's a lot that the Labour Party needs to be saying, and I don't think it's saying it. But now the uh, NEU have put out this statement to say that teachers shouldn't go to work because it is unsafe and in breach of law. Section 44 of the Health and Safety at Work Act. We need to step up to this and we need to actually, especially as a lawyer or a QC, as the leader, you know, it's in law. Teachers are walking out because they feel unsafe and they're essentially illegally being asked to go to work if they feel unsafe and they and their children are being put at risk. Ewan, I'm going to come back to you. What do you think? Is, does Labour need to be to be stronger on this? What should Labour be doing in response to this? I think it should be issuing statements. Um, I think it should support the unions on this because otherwise what's the point of the Labour Party? Um, I think if we, should, if we should be having anything first, I think we should be having... Because um, I don't really care if Keir Starmer mentions anything about this because he's the leader of the opposition. What I want to hear is the Shadow Education Secretary talking about this um, more than anything, Kate Kate Green, because that's her job. She should be, you know, doing that as part of her job. She should be making statements on um, safety teachers. So I think that's who I want to hear first. And Keir Starmer can get there in his own time. I, I really don't care at this point um, <laughs> what Keir Starmer says. Um, but yeah, no, we should be having um, Kate Green um, making statement. Um, I don't know who the Shadow Employment Secretary is as well, because um, they should be the main people trying to like hold the government to account on this, not just Keir Starmer doing his forensic kind of stuff. So yeah, we should be having more support for teachers, and it shouldn't just be Keir Starmer having to stand up at PMQs and just waffling on about it it should also be the people whose job it is to you know provide opposition on government's opinions on well the government's kind of um, ideas from their perspective as being employment and education yeah i'm i'm just looking on the labor website um uh, the headline is Labour calls on Education Secretary to provide clarity to parents on the reopening of schools and colleges. Um, it, similar things. I think basically what the Labour Party, the interventions they have made over the past few days have been along the lines of um, things are a bit unclear, um, things are lacking clarity, the government needs to sort this out uh, and the government also needs to to, to, to ensure that mass testing is in place um, for, for school returns. Um, but they don't seem to have really taken a particularly firm stance, or at least not pushed it very much in, in terms of should, should schools actually be staying closed over the next few weeks. I think I think the, everything we've seen of Starmer so far suggests that he, he would be quite hesitant for the, for the Labour Party, I think, to, to take a position like that. But we'll see. Maybe that will change in response to any you and, and, and the higher cases over the next few days. We'll, I suppose we'll have to wait and see. I suppose this brings us to what the final thing I want to talk about in relation to COVID. Um, I, I think maybe we, we've spotted a bit of a theme here in terms of 
the Labour Party and its positioning on on a number of things in in the Starmer's leadership. So we can maybe talk about that. But really, I suppose what what I want to ask each of you is, what do you think? What do you think we've learned from 2020? And how 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 has COVID changed things? How has Starmer's leadership changed things? Um, and then our final topic later on will, will be on Brexit and how that might change things. So um, who, who wants to give us some thoughts on, on 2020 and, and, and where we've got to with the COVID crisis? Mr. Watt, I'm going to come to you first. Well, I still have some optimism about this um, pandemic and the way it's changed things. I think something that we have to remember um is that we now do actually have more than one vaccine we have several vaccines which appear to be effective even against the new strains so far as we know and it is a tremendous achievement to have got that done in the time frame in which it has been created uh, in fact the I think it's the Moderna vaccine was actually created back in January. So very, very close to the start of the pandemic. Obviously, it was couldn't be released uh, into the public until it had gone through months and months of testing uh, to to ensure that it worked and it was safe. And that's an important part of the process, the main part of the process, I suppose. Um, so you know this is a that's we really are at the pinnacle of scientific achievement so for all of this uh for all we are talking about the this present government's incompetence and other governments incompetence in in dealing with uh this pandemic on a day-to-day basis underneath it all there is still uh, 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 some real hope i suppose for our species and that there are actually genuinely talented people who are capable of creating this thing for us and yes they do vote, uh, work for these um large pharmaceutical companies which uh, you know hold um hold a lot of sway over how medicine is produced in the world but also, you know, it's a reminder even then that, you know, that's only been possible because of huge collaboration uh, and support from states as well, ultimately. So I think there's a, there's a lot of uh, optimism there that, you know, we... Um, Do you, I just but, want to pick up on that point. Do you particularly in terms of you know if you if you look at the mass interventions of states across the world um in response to covid do you think that this provides an opportunity to change the debate on on issues of, of state support state intervention um the, the place that the market has you know do, do you think this is a chance for the left to change some of that conversation yeah i think it does and i think it um I think it changes what is it what what is important as well in terms of because for uh for a long time if you were when we were growing up if you were considered intelligent 
for instance, you know, and, and, and someone who had talent, you would probably be being pushed towards, you know, studying humanities, something like that. I think this will actually encourage more people to be interested in sciences, um, in, 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 in STEM subjects, stuff that will actually improve the world. I think that will be, uh, I think that will be one of the effects of this, uh, pandemic. I, I think, I hope that it will turn people's minds away from thinking about finance and, and that as, as, as being, and the free market as being the, the, the most important things in the world where, where you can get the most value. That would be my, that would be my sense. That, that, that's why I feel optimistic about this, um, about what comes out of this pandemic. And, you know, we're already seeing, uh, I think it's had an effect as well. You, I've, we're seeing, I mean, seeing an increasing number of articles as well, talking about how businesses are starting to go, well, actually, maybe, maybe we could do uh, with a four-day working week. You know, maybe we don't need um this absurd um you know industrial model of going into work five days a week just for the sake of showing up um all of these things have sort of been blown out of the water by the pandemic um and i think that will have a profound impact on our economy going forward and i think it will change in due course, uh, the attitude of governments as well, but there will be resistance to it because, you know, if the, if this government in particular is notably stupid, um, so they will obviously put up resistance to it. Um, and obviously there are will be more far-sighted people as well who can see how changes like that could lead to a more socialist society. So I suspect um there will be resistance on that level as well um but we on the left i think need to seize on those lessons and i think in the same way that people like harold wilson for instance in the last century uh seized on uh on technological change uh, grabbed hold of the winds of, of economic change in the mid 20th century to win four elections and so on um i think we need to do the same thing here and this is why you know i really hope that what we've seen from keir starmer for instance isn't indicative of the way that the labor party and political parties like ours um are going to go because if it, if he does go for this sort of triangulation method tries to maintain neoliberalism um i think that would be deeply anachronistic um we need to be seizing hold of the winds of change and having a more positive vision for how uh, our society is going to be organized going forward because four day working week it's coming and maybe in a way um that's the way we persuade keir starmer because he seems to be the sort of guy who will support a policy so long as he knows it's already going to happen. So, um, yeah, I think strategically 
that's what we need to that's what we need to uh, do going forward is is uh, is seize the opportunities to uh, alter the way that uh, our economy runs through this pandemic that's what we were saying six months ago and i don't think anything has changed and ollie you know look, looking back at 2020 looking forward to 2021 and um, despite everything that's happened, do you, do you feel like there's there's cause to be optimistic about the future? What what, what are your thoughts um, at the start of the new year? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think I think Callum Watt put it very well there about um, the the necessity to uh, seize the the changes that are happening in society as a whole. Um, I think obviously twenty twenty has been a, a year like no other um, in, in living memory, really. Um, but there was a lot of rhetoric that was uh, thrown around about um, 2020 being a particularly bad year um, in terms of, you know, <clears throat> people's, um, like, freedoms, I guess you could say, in a very limited way, um, were kind of taken away almost from them and uh, people had to change a lot of what they were doing people couldn't go on on holiday it wasn't business as usual as such um stuff like that um and then in some ways you know that's obviously a bad thing um in some ways i think it could be considered a good thing um i think we do need to think about how we can use these um big societal kind of uh, what are the, i don't even know what you call it like this this almost event um, and, and think about how that can be used to make change in a good way, as Callum says. But the idea that 2020 was just a particularly bad year, I don't necessarily agree with. Um, I think I think this is maybe a, almost in a very pessimistic way, you know, the, the face of things to come almost, you know, things are, in terms of the environment, things are only going to get worse until we realize um the the mass change that we need to, to make on a societal level um you know there's going to be a lot worse things such as um the the actual breakdown of, of ecosystems and and systems we rely on to you know, we're going to realize how fragile things are i think um and how fragile this way of life is if we don't um protect it in some ways um and i think that's very important i think things could get a lot worse i I really hope things get a lot better but i think it's going to take a lot more than a pandemic that stops people in some ways from going outside or um, doing what they usually do um to make those changes and to to make people realize um what's going to come ahead in the next few decades Uh, and Ewan, what, what do you think? Are, are we in a, in a better position, um, perhaps, than we were a year ago, to 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 start looking to the, the other issues beyond COVID that, that we face? Um, are are we in a good place to start tackling things like climate change and inequality, um, or, or do you think there's a lot of work we need to do over twenty twenty one? I think there is a lot of work that we have to do. I think some things that this well. That the year has happened um, has helped with. Um, so this was before the year started, really. But 
has helped in the long run is now that Labour has a more diverse left wing, if that makes sense. Um, it's not just because um, nothing. Well, um, it's not. It's not just like you know the socialist campaign group kind of old old guard anymore. It has a bit more of a diverse kind of range of opinions and stuff, which is good for the party and its left wing. Um, I think also what this pandemic has proven is also that the kind of very traditional idea of, um, you know, you treat, um, you treat government and the economy like a house and that you budget like a house and, oh, if, if we're going into like, you know, if we, um, what's it again, you know, debt is something that you should try and avoid and you have to tighten your belts and do austerity and all that. Um, which often is essentially a cover to implement austerity when it does need to be in implemented. Austerity is a political program, not a um, not a um, like economic one. Most economists don't think it's actually a good idea. So I think what that this year has proven is actually that government can use money, can spend money, and that. Um, you know, the, the Bank of England is happy to lend money um, and be, you know, is happy to use money to deal with problems. And you could use the same processes that Rishi Sunak has both tried and often failed to grasp because Rishi Sunak is essentially one of the old, is kind of a Cameronite style um, economist at heart. Um, but he's tried a little bit under pressure from government is that kind of idea of you can actually open the floodgates of uh, money. You know, it's, it's not just, you know, um, as much as Laura Kunzberg said, um, the credit card is maxed out. It's not actually. Um, we actually have plenty of monies to spare. The Bank of England is happy to keep on lending. So you could apply the same kind of processes that we've dealt dealt with this crisis to deal with the climate crisis. So I think what this year has proven actually is to have a lot of work to do, but I think this year has proven that um, Labour now has the tools um, to build some form of electoral success, some form of kind of new social democratic consensus as it were. Um, just what it has to do is it actually has to use the tools. It actually has to build consensus. And I'm interested about some things. I'm not hopeful in Keir Starmer, but I am. I do like Annalise Dodd. She's quite um, good on the econ economic side, which makes sense because John McDonnell personally vouched for her. So she, I'm hopeful with her and I'm hopeful with a couple of other people, but I think it needs to be not just, you know, a few members of the shadow candidate, you know, you need to have a bit more of a diverse range of opinions. And I think Labour can get somewhere, as proven by this crisis, it can do something um, for the future and it could maybe eventually become a transformative government. Um, inspired by this crisis, but it actually has to put the effort in and not just uh, just do the opposite of what the government does. So I'm mildly hopeful is probably the best way to describe it. <laughs>
Well, uh, moving on to our final topic, talking of um, what, somewhere where Labour hasn't done um, the opposite of what the government's done, um, is in regards to the um, much-awaited uh, last-minute deal with the with the European Union. So um, I, th- I think all of us were, were fairly concerned on this podcast that we were heading towards a, a no-deal Brexit. Uh, we were talking earlier on, um, before we came on our, online, um, about some people thought that a lot of this was a ruse by Boris to, to, to be able to pluck out of the air a last-minute deal and make himself look fantastic and talk and have the media talk up um, the dangers of a no-deal. Um, you know, Callum, what I think you said you were a bit sceptical as to whether that was actually a, a proper plan that Boris had. Um, but, but if it was, we fell for it, I suppose, on this podcast. We were quite concerned and fairly convinced we were heading towards a no-deal. Um, but we haven't. We, we have alleviated catastrophe um, and, and a last minute deal has been struck between the European Union and the UK, um, which has now come into effect. We're in January, now we're in January 2nd, we're in the new year, it's coming to effect. Um, so obviously we'd already left the EU um, on the 31st of January last year, um, but essentially the UK and EU had agreed for nothing to change really in, in, in practice um, until this new year now. Um, so we, we've reached um, a trade agreement. It, ca- it came into place at 11 o'clock on the 31st of December. Um, in essence, um, we, we have essentially, you know, pr- pretty much free trade agreement with the EU. Um, there, there aren't any taxes on goods um, from the UK and the EU, um, and and they're not there are not any limits um, on the on the amount that can be traded. So there's no there's no quotas or tariffs in place at, as of yet. Um, between the UK and the EU, um, there, there will be additional checks on on the borders. Um, the UK has said from the EU side they're not going to put those in straight away, but the EU has, you know, as of yesterday, they, they are in place from the EU side. So there are some additional checks that, that goods have to go through. Um, it, for the UK, um, we are limited to ninety days in the EU. And before before we need to apply for a visa, whereas obviously before we have the right to, to work and live across the EU, uh, we will need to get a visa now for beyond 90 days. Um, and of course, the European Court of Justice no longer has any jurisdiction um, in, in the UK either. Um, the, the agreement reached on fishing, um, which was one of the two big sticklers, um, was that over the next five and a half years, this is according to the BBC website, over the next five and a half years, the UK will gradually gain a greater share of the fish from its own waters, um, and that from 2026, the, the UK can ban EU fishing boats if it wants to in its waters. Um, but if so, the EU would be open to be it would, would be allowed to be able to introduce taxes on British fish in a response. So we, we've reached um, a deal um, at the last hour, um, and, and that's now in effect. So we've we've managed to avoid no deal. Mr. Watt, what are your thoughts? Is this is this a good deal for the UK? Can we finally put Brexit to rest? Well, no, absolutely not. And I, I find, think it's quite naive. People, a lot of the articles saying, yes, now this is, now that we, we can set aside all of the jingoism of the last few years, you know. Um, a- absolutely not, because if the if the government go decides to go really hard on this um, and use this as an opportunity to try and turn it into a Singapore of off the coast of Europe, um, then you know the inevitable economic consequences for ordinary working people. The only way they'll be able to politically offset that will be to go really hard on nationalism. Um, the, they're basically 
less will become less like Singapore and more like North Korea, I suspect, because um, that's that's the only way you can uh, counterbalance in our respect. Um, and, you know, that sort of media manipulation is something that this government excels at, where it excels at basically nothing else. Um, and, you know, I, I was quite sceptical, you're right to say, that, that, you know, there was, I mean, it was Michael Walker at Navarra Media who was really leading the charge in arguing that, um, that it was all very much a farce that effectively everything had already been agreed and that the last few few months of the negotiations were really just a show between the EU and the UK uh, to make the UK government look good for coming up with a last-minute agreement. Um, the EU and the UK knew each other's positions. Um, of course, there are still years and years of negotiations to go on lots and lots of details that haven't actually been worked out fundamentally. The fundamentals of this deal were probably agreed many months ago. Um, and as I say, I was quite sceptical as to whether that was actually the case. But then obviously it played out exactly as was suggested um, a couple of, you know, a, a day or two um, before the absolute deadline, um, a, a deal was reached. Um, so I, I do think it was a farce um uh, in, in that respect and, and i think the real priority now uh the, the the politics of the next few years as far as brexit is concerned will be about preventing uh backsliding on human rights on workers rights on civil rights because that will now be the priority of this government getting rid of those barriers to, as they see it, um, to turning us into a low-wage, low-skill economy. Um, and, you know, it should be a real opportunity having a human rights lawyer leading the what's still the largest political party in Western Europe. Um, that's There's some real scope there for opposing uh, that. Um, and I still hope that that, that is uh, how that plays out. But... Uh, there needs to be, we, we need to, I, I think the progressives in this country really need to clear their heads um, and realise that this isn't a, a positive thing. You can't just uh, set, uh, set aside the last few years and go, you know, all, all of the jingoism is finished because it really isn't. It is going to go on. This project hasn't ended with the with the end of this transition period and this this agreement it has only just begun uh, mr roper uh, what are your thoughts are are, are we uh, set for for a fight um, against reductions in, in workers and environmental rights um, over the next few years have, have we have we got battles to come um, for the left on this issue still yeah i i, I think that that is going to be exactly the case and Instead of, I mean, the, the narrative we need to be setting is that we need a Britain that's going to be racing to the top on environmental standards, on looking after its people, on investing in talent amongst the population, on being welcoming to immigrants and refugees, on investing in, in so many different areas that will, that will benefit so many people, not just in this country, but around the world. And that's what we need to be saying, that actually that will also bring prosperity it's not a cost to Britain to be setting the bar high 
if anything, it will only damage us if we set that bar low. And and uh, as as Callum says, playing off that um, or, or looking to play off this sort of nationalistic English exceptionalism that that is is so often uh, characterised the debate around Brexit. And actually, we can be setting the bar high in a way that is that is going to be so much more progressive and in a way that's actually going to bring hope to millions and millions of people, not just in this country, as I say, but around the world. But it does need a strong opposition to be an advocate for that. It needs an opposition that's stuck with this vision, is not going to bow out at the minute that there's any sort of opposition because there is vested interests. There is people that would love to see Britain become a low tax uh, state that's going to take away human rights and allow people to get exploited left, right and centre. We're already starting to go that way. You've only got to look at some of the sweatshops that exist in this country that were found in in Leicester and in the Midlands that were essentially exploiting people that live in this country. It isn't something that's thousands of miles away. It's happening here. So we need to be fighting that. And that isn't just through a strong opposition fighting for that, but it's through strong trade unions, through strong grassroots organisations, through actually building on the community spirit that we've seen during COVID-19. People coming out onto their doorsteps, clapping and actually speaking to their neighbours and engaging and making sure they're okay. That's something we need to take forward we shouldn't just say, oh, well, COVID's gone. I'm going to get back to normality because there is no such thing as a, a new normal for us unless we make it like that. Unless we say that in this post-Brexit Britain, we're going to be fighting for a better society for all, regardless of how people voted in general elections or in referenda, because actually we've got to be putting forward this positive image, this progressive image. And, and I think that it's completely feasible that we can fight for that. And it's realistic. It's not a, uh, it's not a dream. It's not a fantasy. Actually, a Britain that is that is accepting, progressive, and looking after the environment that we live in is a Britain that I think many people would want to live in. Uh, and Ewan, what what are your thoughts on this? Are you, do you think we've got a, a good basis for a, a future relationship with the EU for, from the deal that's been secured? Um, and and what what do you think are going to be the the, the battles ahead for, for the UK in terms of future trade deals, and um, but also I suppose things like workers and and, and environmental regulations as well. Uh, well, I'll start off by saying um, all the conservatives that believe um, you can make Singapore on the Thames with the New Deal and everything are very foolish because they don't they haven't actually read up on Singapore, I guess. Because the reason why Singapore is successful is because it combines what could be best described as a very kind of old school, almost kind of corporatist style um, state system with um, lots of government intervention alongside a kind of neoliberal-esque kind of um, economy in a way. Like it had a planned economy until about like the nineteen late 1990s. So this idea that like, you know, Britain's going to become the new Singapore, you know, become the new Singapore is very stupid if they don't actually leaving investing in um said economy but um i think this new deal is not like it's it's naff like you know it's not it's like there's plenty of ways that they could like in the future things break down there are plenty of ways that like the deal can break down it's 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 a naff deal i think um 
And I think partially, like, it was very interesting watching, um, there was, like, doing the thing, uh, um, when they were doing the kind of vote, and essentially it just was just, like, Theresa May just shouting at everyone for, like, not voting for her deal. And essentially she was just like, hey, I had this deal already done, and you all, like, everyone on both sides all hated it. And now look what deal you've got. You've got, like, the worst of possible worlds. I think that was always going to be the thing. Both, like, you know, it's it was a proposition that neither really Britain nor the EU ever really wanted. Um, because the EU has to deal with new regulations and stuff, and Britain has to do with deal with a lot more than just new regulations and stuff. And so... I think any deal that was going to come out of it was, wasn't going to be very good. And the deal we have got now is, I think, worse than even um, the Theresa May deal, which wasn't the best deal, but it had some legs to it, I guess. Um, and so there isn't really a good base, really, for a future. And I think... Labour will have to prepare to defend employees' rights, to defend environmental rights, to defend a whole slew of just what's going to be chaos over which regulations aren't in place now, which are in place now, which one that which ones do we need, which ones we don't need, um, and like you know, I think <laughs> I think all this chaos that's happened for the rights of what some fish and the vague concept of national sovereignty. I don't think it was a very good bargain that we got out of it. Um, so yeah, I think we're going to have to work on future and yeah, I don't think this deal is good. I think we had better deals and we've squandered it over petty arguments and um, other minutia. So. And Ollie, we, we've gone to everyone else, so we'll come to you as well. What What are your thoughts on the Brexit deal and, and what it means for the future um, for Britain? Well, um, I think it's just been such a, a terrible exercise in in negotiating. I think any any person with with experience in in negotiating can agree. It's just it's been such a a bad idea, <laughs> and it's been followed through with such a blatant kind of political will. Um, I mean, and there's, there's, I'm sure a few things we can agree on on here, which we've said quite, a, quite a lot. No deal was was made to make any deal look good, um, and that's what happened. That's that's the the standards of of a deal becoming lower and lower, and that's what was, um, kind of epitomised when, when it was like, will they, won't they? Will it be a no deal? Um, and we have ended up with a deal now. I think. It's not a very good deal, I don't think. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of failure on the part of negotiating. I think we made a lot of mistakes. Um, I think, firstly, to quote um, a political political um, article, we we massively overestimated the strength of our negotiating position, and we tried to treat the EU as as though we're we're equal in terms of the economy and in terms of trade, and it's just it's just it's just terrible, like. Why? Why would we do that? Why would we um, deliberately like overplay our hand? Um, and secondly, we didn't really know what we wanted out of it. Like they they started the firing gun for those um, first two years of negotiating with um, 
well, um, sorry, with uh, EU chief nego- negotiator Michael Barnier. And that was it. And then we didn't really know what we wanted. So we just really like left fumbling and no one really knew what they wanted out of it. But it seemed like a good idea at the time because just over half of the British population voted for it. Um, I think thirdly, it's it's just going to be a terrible um, outcome moving forward because we so blatantly broke the trust of the EU when the government were quite uh, willfully going ahead with the idea of... Um, uh, sorry, breaking the negotiating deal less than a year after signing it. I mean, why would any country in in future want to deal with a country which just so uh, so easily reverses on what they promised? It's just it's just unthinkable. I don't understand um, how that's going to be of any benefit moving forward. Um, yeah, it's been terrible from start to finish, but it's it's sure is not over because they've just kicked everything into into the future um yeah sorry that sounds quite depressing well well uh, i suppose in a recap of the year i suppose ending on a depressing note isn't completely out, out of context is it um well i i think um we'll, we'll we'll go to each person if you've got it is anyone have anything to add callum i see you've still got your hand up but i don't know if that's from before it was from before, sorry. Okay, I thought you were going to give us some profound pearls of wisdom there, but maybe not. Um, well, I, I think um, after all those views on Brexit, we're, we're going to bring the podcast to a close there. Um, so for for this week, um, that's it from me, Bradley Allsop. Um, and it's a goodbye from Ewan as well. But goodbye, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the uh, episode. And... Uh, if anyone ever needs any uh, recommendations on left-wing economics books, I'm your man. <laughs> yeah, you, Ewan's knowledge in that area is profound, and I'm sure we'll be getting lots of articles in 2021 from Ewan um, in that area. Um, and it's a goodbye from Mr. Roper. Uh, happy New Year, everyone. Thank you for listening again. Obviously, 2021 may start a bit like 2020, but I'm sure we'll be fighting for a, a fairer, more progressive and certainly a healthier new year. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's a goodbye from Mr. Watt. Goodbye all. Please stay safe. And for, last but certainly not least, it's goodbye from Molly. Uh, goodbye, everyone. Stay safe more than ever. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Um, we'll be back next week with a, with another edition of Podcast 1201. Um, but before then, stay safe. Um, and if any of you listening... Um, are going to be taking part uh, well if you well I suppose it's not strike action yet but if you if you're going to be in defiance of, of the government and I'm not going to the classroom um, along with the rest of your union absolute solidarity to you goodbye everyone <laughs> <laughs>